Welcome to the 93rd episode of The Goods, a film podcast. We got a special one today because we have a guest to the podcast. That's someone who's never been on the show before. His name is Gavin. Welcome, Brian, and welcome, Gavin. How are you all doing today? Hey, doing okay, Dan. Glad to welcome somebody new. We're expanding our network. That's right. And Gavin, uh, you're in Paris right now. So Brian and I are on the East Coast, and uh, it's 8.20 p.m. So what time does that make it for you right now? Uh, it's almost half past two. Oh, God. But you know, I was motivated Um stay up here at home by myself. Wife and child are not at home, so I'm living my bachelor life. I, I don't, I'm not wearing pants at the moment. So <laughs> <laughs> That's the greatest advantage, perhaps, of the podcast format. No one need wear pants. <laughs> As with all our guest episodes, Gavin, we invited you to select a movie for me and Brian to watch. And now the three of us are going to discuss it. And this is the 1997 film Destiny, directed by Yusuf Shaheen, something along those lines. That's correct. He's an Egyptian director Based on my cursory research, probably the most acclaimed of the Egyptian directors. He had one film that seemed to be pretty highly regarded. I forget what it was called, but he, he had a long career and he passed away in 2008. And again, this film is called Destiny. It takes place in the 12th century. We're going to talk a lot about its setting, its characters. But before we do that, uh, Gavin, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? We can talk a little bit about how we met and maybe why you were drawn to this film. Right. Okay. So uh, my name is Gavin McDowell. I guess it might be easier to say how I ran into the goods. I met I met Dan through uh, a different a different movie podcast uh, called Alternate Ending. I've been a devotee of the uh, of the site and its its main reviewer for uh, almost a decade, more than a decade now. And I believe Dan was kind of a latecomer in the past few years. And we started interacting in the comments and eventually on the Discord. And then one day, Dan accidentally invited me to the, the Goods Discord. And I'd actually been listening to the podcast before then, so he would post episodes uh, on the alternate ending Discord. And, you know, I like, I like movies. I like to discuss movies. I like to hear people discussing movies. Uh, so there was that. And then there's the, the matter of destiny. Uh, my background is in religious studies, uh, especially uh, biblical studies and Jewish studies. But while studying uh, theology at Notre Dame, where I did my undergrad, I took uh, Islamic studies courses. Uh, the professor named uh, Gabriel Reynolds, who introduced me to this movie, he showed, he showed the class this movie. And I was just utterly fascinated by it. I don't think I'd ever seen an Egyptian movie before. I'm not sure I've seen an Egyptian movie since then, to be honest. First time I've seen a movie in Arabic. First time I'd ever seen a, a movie that represented the 12th century. Certainly not Andalusia from, from uh, say, a Muslim perspective, even though Shaheen himself was not Muslim. Uh, and about a famous philosopher, Averroes, who I primarily knew from references in medieval Christian literature. So it's kind of my uh, introduction to his life and work. Yeah, that's awesome. It's it's been uh, fun chatting with you over on the alternate ending Discord, and I, I tell Brian and other people I, I just like 
listening to smart people talk or like reading what smart people write. And I appreciate that you are well-educated and smart. And so I was like, it'd be nice to have him on the pod at some point. And you, you volunteered. So I'm glad. Well, listening to smart people talk is a key theme of this film as is winning new recruits, right? Spreading our ideology. Yeah, I suppose. So welcome aboard. Fewer neck stabbings in the goods philosophy than the ones we're going to be experiencing here. <laughs> so far. Yeah. And Gavin, you, you studied at Notre Dame, but you've also studied internationally, including Jerusalem, correct? Yeah, so I lived, I lived for two years in Jerusalem. Where I, where I met my wife, who is French, and I basically followed her to France. And I've basically, I was, I mean, I'm an American. I was born in Indiana, but I've lived most of my adult life abroad in various countries that, that were at war with the British at some point in their history. So that's, uh, which is most of them. So uh, I'm, I'm also a French citizen. I'm a naturalized French citizen. Uh, lived in Paris for, for several years before going to, came back because of my wife's work and then back in Paris now. Cool. Yeah. It's important because this film has a lot of French money behind it and it starts in France. Yeah. One of my best friends from high school, he got his postdoctorate at, I think there's just a university called the university of Paris, right? Yeah. The Sorbonne, but the Sorbonne is not a single university since 1968. It's been split into about 18 different institutions. Okay. One of those. I don't think you yeah. can hear the history. <laughs> um, my doctorate is from one of those as well. Gotcha. Uh, so I'm not going to say the name in French. So you, you studied at Notre Dame for your bachelor. Right. Bachelor at Notre Dame, master's in Jerusalem, and doctorate in France. So three, three degrees from three different continents. Wow. That's, I, I can't say I know too many people who have degrees from three different continents. So it's pretty cool. But um, the reason I bring it up is because I grew up a major Notre Dame fan. My brother went there. Both of my parents went there. They met there. And if you actually ever get an email from me and it's from my old username from high school, which is what I use for most of my Google Docs, then you'll see Notre Dame is actually part of it because that's how much of a fanboy I was of Notre Dame in high school. Is Along with Billy Joel, it looks like. That's right, yeah. Billy Joel, Notre Dame, yeah. Funny because Billy Joel, I think, is officially banned from from <laughs> coming on campus. Yeah. After he pulled a stunt, I do. I, do you know this story? I, I think I do, but you can go ahead and tell it. Right. Okay. So he was he was specifically he was going to perform a concert on campus, and he was specifically told not to perform the song "Only the Good Die Young," which is about a guy who's trying to seduce a good Catholic girl, and he performed the song like four times. Right, despite so uh, yeah. kind of uh, flagrant uh, violation yeah. of what he specifically asked Nog to do, and that was his last concert at Notre Dame. That's pretty funny, yeah. And what? Are, how do you feel about Rudy? I've never seen Rudy. I assume that is uh, an intentional choice. Saturday Saturday afternoons is a great time to study in the library. It was so quiet. Oh, that's how my mom is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. There you go. But I, I went there doing some pretty dire football seasons. So I was, I was there from 2004 to 2008, and those were those were sad years to be Notre Dame football fans. Oh yeah, yeah, that was a rough time. That's that was kind of the peak of my fandom was right around then. So yeah, not not a great time. But anyways, we we have diverted from the topic slightly. So let's talk about Destiny, the 1997 film. According to Wikipedia, it is 
French slash Egyptian film. It probably had French money in it or, or something like that. I don't actually know where it was filmed. Do you know where it was filmed, Gavin? Uh, yes, it was filmed in Syria and Lebanon. Okay. And I don't know like where the scenes in France were filmed. And I imagine the scenes in Egypt were filmed in Egypt. I also don't think I've ever seen a Arabic language film before, so this was pretty cool. I'm thinking back on other 1997 films we've covered. So this is joining the ranks now of things like Titanic... Also, Scream 2. Also, George of the Jungle. <laughs> oh, God. So I have to see how it measures up. A storied year, yeah, for sure. Strange, I would have thought it. I would have thought of it in the context of like the 200 or so films that are called Destiny. <laughs> That's right. Including, I think, another one from 1997. I did see that. There was another one from 1997. You just had to look for the one that had a bearded face on it, and you would get this one. <laughs> but... This movie takes place in 12th century Europe during the Christian Inquisition. Um, so I, I'm in my notes here. I think I got this wrong, and Gavin already wrote in some notes here, some corrections. Yeah, let's let's just read what's right. You, we could we could have Gavin say it. I think. Sure. So Gavin, why don't you explain the distinction between the Inquisition and what else is going on, at least as far as this movie is concerned. Okay, so in terms of, of the movie's depiction of Christianity, you have two different factions. Like the movie opens in Languedoc, which is a region in the south of France, and it opens with, with the burning of, of a heretic. Uh, guys being burned at the stake, surrounded by his, his works. And that, honestly, that scene, which is quite arresting, I like the scene as a scene, but it sets off my bullshit detector because he's, he's being burned for having translated the work of Averroes the main character of this film from Arabic into Latin. And they actually give the name of the guy being burned. His name is Gerard, something like Gerard Boy. And I try to look up to see if this was a real person or not. And I was unable to find someone who was burned at the stake in France in the 12th century of this name. I did find someone from the next century who had written a commentary on Aristotle, who is an important figure in the film. Uh, but in general, in general, the translation of works, especially Aristotle from Arabic into Latin, was was considered a good thing. And I feel like this film is conflating whoever this person is supposed to be with the, per the persecution of heretics, which heretics are are people who are Christians, baptized Christians who have deviated in some way, and especially the Cathars. But they're not relevant to this film. It was a, it was a heresy that proliferated in southern France in this time period. And they definitely were, they definitely were burned at the stake. So yeah, that yeah, that one faction is the Inquisition there, trying to root out the enemy within. But then you also have the Christians in Spain. And so Spain was the territory of the Roman Empire. And after the empire was Christianized or as a Christian territory until the eighth century, when during the Arab conquests, it was it was conquered by the uh, the the Umayyad uh, members of the Umayyad Caliphate, and they established their own kingdom there. And we basically see that situation 600 years later. But the the Span the Spaniards had been trying for I would say at least a century to reconquer to reconquer that that land. So you have Spanish Christians trying to reconquer Spain, and you have the French Christians, which are which is kind of not really relevant to the main plot apart from the opening. 
Well, it's relevant for a couple reasons. One is that it's a French film, right? At least partially. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. So they they want to figure in somewhere, uh, but it also serves thematically to hold up a mirror, because fire. Well, yes, fire. But the <laughs> idea that persecution of infidels, of people who hold ideas antithetical to the establishment is not solely a Muslim thing. It's happening all around. That those in power want to stamp out so-called heretical ideas. Burn it away, right. So at the so it, it basically sacrifices some of that historical fidelity, or at least like uh, kind of mashing together a couple of different ideas in order to like convey that idea. I, c I can definitely see that. But I think Gavin's right. The, the key, at least from a narrative perspective, angle here really has nothing to do with the Inquisition. It's just that there's this portion of Spain, Andalusia, that is Muslim. And then there's another portion above it that is Christian ruled. And the Christians are trying to retake that, that part of Spain, the Andalusia area. So there's a lot of tension there because the Andalusia is kind of on the defensive there. So yeah. So we see this guy burned at the stake, and then we meet his son. So his son is going to be a minor secondary character here. There's actually a pretty big cast in this movie, so it's kind of an ensemble uh, with a couple of leads, and this guy's one of the ensemble. His name is Joseph, and he flees to Andalusia with his mom, so with the wife of the, the man who was burned at the stake. And... Like they're as they're wandering, the mom, like basically what appears to be moments later, also dies of like heart attack or of grief or something. So now it's the son, Joseph, on his own, and he is going to go down to Andalusia where 90 plus percent of the film's action will take place. And the, this Andalusia area is led by Caliph Mansur. Mansur? Mansur? How do you say it? M A N S U R. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, I would say <clears throat> Mansur. Oh, I should have. I should have. Uh, <laughs> I should have looked at the specific pronunciation. So, is Caliph? Is that someone in charge of all of Andalusia, or just like a portion of Andalusia? Okay. Well, uh, Caliph is. It designates someone who is um, a direct successor of the Prophet, the Prophet Muhammad. So it's kind of like a pope, is how I've heard it described. It's that's not that's not wrong uh, because it's definitely a religious position. But it's also a kingship position. It's, it's a combination of uh, church and state, right? You're the Catholic is ahead of both, and that might seem confusing because the first the first caliphate after uh, Muhammad's death was was the Umayyads, who ruled out of Syria, and at the time that this film takes place, uh, the primary caliphate would have been located in Baghdad, and this is kind of an offshoot. What happened is that the uh, the Umayyads were were massacred in the middle of the eighth century, uh, and replaced by the Abbasids, who continued to rule as the primary caliphate for the next five hundred years. But in Spain, which is far away from the center of action, you still had Umayyad rule for several centuries, and the caliph in this uh, in this movie, uh, he's not an Umayyad, but he's he claims his legitimacy from from their rule in Spain. So uh, he's basically in charge of Spain and parts of North Africa. He has a secondary capital in um, Marrakesh. 
I believe. Okay. So that's that's some of the things the film won't tell you. <laughs> right. Okay. It just kind of like hand waves him as a caliph. He's like the chief of the area. He's he's the he's the big he's the guy in charge. You know, he's both head of the religious establishment and the government. And Amir is more like a prince. You know, he does who has who is part of the aristocracy, but doesn't have a religious position. And a sheikh just refers to like an elder, someone who I don't know is venerable in the community and probably has a lot of money. As I mentioned, Sheikh Riyadh is, is the richest man. He's pretty much the richest man in, in Andalusia. Yeah, so for people just tuning in, people on the outside, this film prominently features a caliph, an emir, and a sheikh. So there were moments when I was a little lost, but it came together by the end. Right. Same, I would say. Although I was still a little confused in who all of the figures are associated with this one offshoot sect that we're going to talk about here in a minute. But the main character, or at least like the central figure, is, can you pronounce it again? Averroes? Averroes. Averroes. So he is a writer and philosopher, but also the head judge and like the main counsel of the caliphate, Caliph Mansur. And the Wikipedia describes this guy as a polymath. So someone who was just smart and did a lot of stuff. Right. He was also a physician. He was what? A physician. Oh, wow. Oh, right, right. Because he, he, he takes you care see him of... him skills. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> next stab guy. Yeah. All right. So he studies just about everything. And what I found really interesting, I hadn't heard of him before this week, but he was pivotal in the preservation and the dissemination of the works of Aristotle because, you know... Europe was going through the Dark Ages and they lost a lot of the ancient knowledge. And so I think probably a lot of people in the Western world don't think about the Middle East's role in preserving that knowledge when Europe was going through its cultural nadir. That, that we would need to rely on Eastern scholars to preserve Western knowledge. And that theme of the preservation of knowledge and like the nature of way knowledge spreads among people is the core theme of this film. And this character, he's sort of a good vizier. And I feel like we're very used to the evil vizier archetype. Like, this guy's job is the same as Jafar from Aladdin, except <laughs> he's doing the right thing. He's a good guy. He's got the king's ear in a good way. He, he's kind of like Merlin, is who I was thinking of, advising King Arthur. Or maybe a little bit like Uncle Iroh from Avatar. It struck me that in these scenes where we see Averroes interact with the Caliphate, that Averroes' main role seemed to be talking the, the Caliphate down from being mad at someone or something. And like being like, you got to chill out, bro. And using his EQ as well as his IQ. But the the conflict starts basically as soon as we get to Andalusia. It's like the scene where Joseph is walking into the streets and there's this growing contingent of a radical sect of believers. Um, and I found it very helpful. There's a lot of people and the, it seems like a decent amount of effort went into making garb period accurate to some extent, or at least making it feel like it's period accurate. So you have like a lot of, a lot of people are in similar type clothes, but the, everyone who's involved with the sect is 
color coded in green. So you knew if you see someone in green that they're to put a simple stroke on it, they're the bad guy. There's a lot of leaders of this group and faces of this group, and that's part of where I started to get confused, but there's one kind of fella who causes a lot of trouble. And he, I thought he looked like Snoop Dogg, but he's this guy that we see in the first scene, and he's basically like, yeah, we're going to puff up the king some, but only so basically we can get on his good side. It's like they're not actually a fan of him, but they're they're trying to empower their own sect. Is that where they say... Um flatter him till he bursts yes i think that's at the beginning i took down yeah i took down that notes um on that line in particular i don't know why it just stuck out another thing that averroes does that's controversial and that this sect especially doesn't like is he preaches that rationalism is compatible with the quran like studying and learning about the world and doing science can coexist alongside Sharia and stuff. And that's controversial to some, to the fundamentalists. Yeah, so Gavin, one thing that struck me, and I was wondering if you could help me out with this one, is it occurred to me that as I was watching that this sect is never given a name. They're just called the sect. So like, how would you describe them? They, they definitely seem like they're on the religious conservative side. But like, what are some of the traits of this sect? Well, they're definitely, um, I was about to say fundamentalist. My problem with the word fundamentalism is that it's closely associated with Christianity, including a division of Christianity that calls himself fundamentalist. So that's not my favorite word, but it gets, it gets to the point of it. Um, I was writing down my thoughts about this film, and my memories from when I first saw it is that they were a Sufi sect but I've, I've never seen that word used to describe them in the literature I read about the film. And I thought about that because of the scene where they're dancing and kind of chanting the song of praise to their leader. But I don't want to state categorically that they're Sufis because um, I don't really think of Sufis as being, as being especially fundamentalist. Uh, in terms of the philosophical debates, at the center of this film, which is also something, it's implied something you're supposed to know, <laughs> in advance, they refer a couple of times to a, a philosopher named uh, Al-Ghazali, who was uh, a philosopher who died at the beginning of the 12th century, who had written a book called The Incoherence of the Philosophers. And it was a screed against um, Greek philosophy, the use of Greek philosophy in Islam, uh, which of course is Averroes' own position. And Averroes wrote a refutation called the incoherence of the incoherence. You hear that a couple times in the movie. You actually see a copy of it. And that is, that's the particular reason why they hate Averroes. Uh, Ghazali essentially said that things happen in the world because God wills them. So if, if you set something on fire, it's not a natural law. It's not because of any inherent property in the fire. It's because God caused that fire. Whereas Averroes is of the of the opinion that there are not you know natural laws. Every time you set something on fire, it's going to burn. Uh, it's not God causing instantaneous fires every time. Something like that. That's like the classic example. And that's that was the death of my research on Wikipedia into this issue. So I can't talk further without looking like a fool. <laughs> well, no, that's really helpful because that actually just clicked something into place for me, which is that. I never quite got why they were so anti 
Iveroese. That's like a thing from the start. So I thought at first it was just that they wanted the power he had because, you know, he, he's got the, the caliph's ear. He's also the judge, as we'll see. And so they were going to target him as like the first political pawn. But it's actually more than that. And, and we know that there is contrasting philosophies here, but like very specifically, they're against his philosophies. They're against his Aristotelianism. You know, he's not, I mean, he's not the first Muslim philosopher to try to, to uh, resolve Greek philosophy with Islam. But this was during a heightened, um, I guess, a heightened, a heightened period of Puritanism, the dynasty to which the Caliph belongs. It's called the Almohads, who had just taken power in the previous century, like within 50 years of this film. And they were marked by um, kind of an increase in what we call it Puritanism. It was kind of like fundamentalism, religious extremism, back to basics type stuff. Uh, and there was an extreme persecution, especially of the minority religious communities, the Christians and Jews. And a particularly famous Jewish philosopher, Moses Maimonides, actually left, who was born in the same town as Averroese. They were 10 years apart. He left Spain for Egypt to get away from that. So uh, that's more of the historical background for you. I feel like I have to shut up or I'll turn into a lecture. <laughs> well, no, it's really interesting because you spend your two hours and 15 minutes in this world that I literally know nothing about. And like now all of a sudden, some of this stuff is actually kind of interesting and kind of clicking into place a little bit like with uh, with what we see. So I appreciate you bringing that for sure. Two of the other main characters we see here are the sons of Mansur. I'm, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. I'm sorry if it's wrong. Uh, Man, did you say Mansur or Mansur? I don't care. Okay, uh, Mansur. <laughs> so the older son is the crown prince, and his name is Nasser. And the younger son is Abdullah. And this movie for much of its duration, is kind of for the battle of these, the souls of these two princes, um, especially Abdullah, the younger brother. Because Abdullah, we see from the start, is in the midst of kind of finding his identity. He kind of like doesn't really know what he believes yet. It's, it's almost like a teenager phase. I think he's, we're supposed to think he's around like between 18 and 20. Uh, but kind of, I associate it with what you think the typical teenager being is that he is hanging out with whoever's around and like trying on different identities. Um, and he's, but he definitely has some like rebelliousness to him. We get a little monologue from the Caliph early on that he's mad that, you know, Abdullah doesn't seem to know what he's doing and he's always getting up to trouble. And another thing we learn about Abdullah early is that he is in the midst of a sexual relationship with a young woman who is identified in the film as gypsy. I know that that term has fallen out of, favor i guess romani is the term now is would you say that the people identified here as gypsies are romani scavin yeah uh, romani or roma i don't know if there's a preference between those two and in early scene we see so averroes he's got like a whole uh, group of followers and they're generally who we identify as the good guys of the film averroes's clan and there is a guy, a singer in this group named Marwan and his wife is a dancer and he, you know, he dances with them. And I think it's like dancing is a contentious thing because, you know, obviously dancing is sex always. And I think that contrasts with the philosophy of the more conservative sect is like you shouldn't be dancing out in public and 
singing and celebrating music. It was my mom, like, so I remember, I don't think I said this yet. I watched this at a beach house with a lot of my family. I'm actually at a beach right now. And so I had family around. I watched it with my brother, Will, who's guested on previous episodes of The Goods. And uh, we also had other people watched on and off with us. And my mom watched like five minutes and she said, is this kind of like medieval footloose? And there's at least a little bit of that. It's not exactly that, but like how, or this this group of people who are very anti-dancing, not for the same reasons as Footloose, of course, but. I haven't seen Footloose. Are you sure it's not the same reasons? <laughs> uh, well, in Footloose, it's maybe at its core, it's the same reasons, but Footloose, the community has banned dancing because of after there was a big party, someone died in a car accident while drunk driving. So there's like a specific basis for it. But I guess you're right. It kind of is the same thing because it's all about like a, could I, a more puritanical culture. Yeah. So I had exactly the same thought. I I have described this film to others as medieval footloose. Um, the prohibition of dancing. Well, first of all, they're not just dancing and reciting poetry and listening to music. They're also drinking. Mm. And every one of those things is forbidden in Islam. <laughs> That's um, though you have, uh, first of all, I think music in some of the hadith is formally prohibited. So if you have an extremely strict interpretation of Islam, you can't have music at all, uh, much less dancing. Alcohol, of course, is banned. And I think there are passages in the Quran where they go on a tirade against poets. So these are. Um, it's not merely a, it's not like in Footloose where it's just some inciting incident that happened in recent memory as this goes back against the interpretation of religious law. So again, you know, the fundamentalist sect, they're okay with dancing as long as it's for a good cause, right? As it's, if it's directed toward their, their emir and restoring the purity of the faith. So you're potentially more knowledgeable about this, but I did read a little about the relative permissiveness with regards to alcohol in different sects of Islam. And it sounded like historically, like in the Middle Ages, the upper class did partake. Like, technically, there's a restriction against it, but, you know, like the laws of Leviticus and all those other things, there are situations where certain things are overlooked. But uh, it also said that it was like uh, wine would be a poetic symbol, like wine equals passion in literature. And it was kind of an open question how much it was actually used or whether it was just a poetic device. Uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting because I thought there was like a, a hard and fast rule, uh, even to this day, that nobody in the Middle East could have alcohol. But it, it sounds like it varies from country to country. Like Iran makes sense, is very strict, but other places not as much. Well, um, I'll say this, uh, that... The Quran, I believe, does permit wine, but in traditional uh, interpretation, it, it's eventually applied to all alcohol. And of course, you know, in in extremely uh, it's multicultural societies, even in the Middle Ages, I mean, people obviously there's a tradition of Islamic music, and of course, people in Iran before the revolution drank wine. You know, and more. Uh, it's I mean, it's. They'd be surprised that people don't always follow the letter of the of the law of their religion. Um, but of course, in a fundamentalist circle, you know, drinking absolutely not prohibited prohibited music, uh, highly questionable, and so on. So So a couple of thoughts on this segment, the dancing and the music. 
So first of all, Marwan, he's the singer. We labeled him while we were watching him. We labeled him the people's champion. He was the, the favorite. He, he's, he's got a charisma on screen, and he does a lot of badass stuff. To the extent that badass things happen in this movie, it's typically Marwan doing them. And uh, he's also like a really good singer. And I looked it up. He was a musician as well as an actor, apparently, the guy who played him. I don't have the name right here. And I liked it whenever the, this music came on, because this is like a really talky movie in general. And so anytime you had something that would like kind of broke that up and had a little more energy to it, I thought that was fun. I wish there was more music. Like I wish this was a full on musical. Oh, interesting. You think that would have worked? Something I was wondering about, as I said, I've never seen an Arabic language film. There are some kind of musical numbers in this. Like there are times when everybody stops and they sing and they play instruments and it happens multiple times. But I also was thinking it never fully tipped the scale into what I would think of as a musical. Uh, but I wasn't sure. Like, I wondered if this was the convention similar to, like, a Bollywood or other Indian film where there's a certain amount of music that's expected without necessarily making the film a so-called musical. Honestly, I wouldn't know. I'd have to watch, uh, I guess I'd have to watch more Egyptian films. I had the, th I had the, the exact same thought. And like the one thing that I do remember being told before we watched this film is that you weren't allowed to depict people kissing in Egyptian films. And that's, that's obviously not correct. Not in the case of this film is you do see some premarital kissing. Uh, so a trigger warning for that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if it's something that's specific to this film. It's obviously clearly important to the theme of the film. Right. Uh, and again, the absence in the presence of much talking, in the absence of meaningful action, uh, I would have appreciated at least a few more dance numbers. And Dan, I think you said that the prince, the younger prince, Abdullah, is having this affair, but he's also into dancing. I don't know if we specifically said that, but that's like the path that he's going down. Is He, he doesn't want to be a prince. He wants to be a dancer. <laughs> right, yeah. So at the start, at least, we see him kind of joining these dancers there's like mumblings would the prince actually dance out on the street with that marwan fellow and he does but it's like literally the end of that scene so the the green shirt uh sect is kind of hanging around on the outside grumbling that all this dancing is going on and it's basically the same scene where they start courting abdullah so now he so he he's joining the dancer and then right away now he's being recruited by the more conservative sect and they it's kind of weird they like basically abduct him like there's he's not the first not the only time he basically gets abducted in this movie they confront him in a bathhouse a perfectly heterosexual thing to do <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely think uh with Abdullah so you know, we see him, he's in the midst of a tryst with a Romani woman. Her name is Sarah. Sarah, that's right, Sarah. I'd like to come back to that, but not right now. So. We definitely get some some energy, some some sparks between Abdullah and the, the one guy who I said I thought the actor looked like Snoop Dogg, um, who's kind of the face of the, the sect that's trying to court him. And yeah, it's in a... It's in a, a spa, some sort of bathhouse or something, uh, the sauna maybe. 
And there's like a playful wrestling match that goes on. <laughs> um, I'm not the only one who picked up some of those vibes, right? Uh, no, definitely not. Yeah, and I mean, like, the first conversation they have... Well, so first off, he's definitely got something going on with Marwan the singer, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. But then, yeah, this guy is, like, trying to while him away, and the way that he does it is the prince is drunk, and he makes some speech that's, like, in the form of a poem, and the this guy, the green guy, shows up. He's like, Oh, poet, you are so wise sing me another song and yeah he's what did you say earlier puffing him up flattery about how good his poetry is and how wise he is and yeah there was some energy definitely i would say that um abdullah's relationship to marwan is supposed to be filial uh, not suggestive of anything weird between them he's, he's like he's like his foster father i guess they do say that a couple times but i wasn't totally sure what marwan's deal was yeah, well, I I think there, I don't know how intentional it was, but I definitely got some of what Brian was saying, at least in one or two of the scenes, like when he gets him to start dancing and Abdullah looks like really nervous that he would have to get up and dance with Marwan. I mean, maybe that you're right. If he's kind of a father figure, then maybe that's not quite intended. But Abdullah just doesn't quite know what he feels about anything at this point. He's like going whichever way anyone is pulling him. But Marwan, along with, I guess, Averroes, is like public enemy number one. And so about a half hour into the movie here, uh, the the radical, some of the radicals, uh, the green shirts, if you will, they attack Marwan. They stab him in the neck. And we get like a zoom in on this, this neck stab. And I was like, oh, man, Marwan's toast. And then, like, two scenes later, he's lying there in bed. Brian, I was thinking about our discussion of... Uh, the next stab in Scream 4? Oh, Scream 5, I'm sorry. I, I All the screams run together, the new one. That's right. That's one I was thinking of. And the other one I was thinking of is in Walk Hard, when you were talking about how someone looked awful good for just being sawed in half in... Not Walk Hard, uh, but the Walk the Line one, when the brother gets hit by the, the power saw. But Right. So, on the one hand, they did a good job of... Like when he gets stabbed, that was pretty gruesome. And then when he walks in, like he he is starting to recover and he walks into the room and he's got this raspy voice. And that was pretty grueling. But, well, a couple things is that so Avaros, you know, he's good at everything. And he goes into the room with the next stabbed guy and heals him. But we don't see how he does it. And he, he comes <laughs> out and he talks to the other family and the the people around and he says it was wise that you brought him to me with the knife still in his neck for if you had removed it he would have died but i was like well what did you do <laughs> the knife isn't in his neck anymore so how'd you do that you you know it happened off screen maybe he had some sort of medicine or like quick bending sauce i don't know probably not sauce you wouldn't call it that but I have it written in my notes that right right about this scene, there's a close-up of one of the girl's breasts. Did either of you notice that? The time I noticed boobs was there was like a point of view shot, and I don't remember who it was, but it like cut to him looking intensely, and then there was a chest shot. I think it was probably Nasser entering. I think like the first thing, it switches to, um, I guess it would be Averroes' daughter, his daughter Salma. Okay. Close-up of her boobs. <laughs> 
there's definitely in there. Yeah, because by the end of the movie, they they do end up together. Spoilers. So I guess that could have been. <laughs> the women are completely inconsequential in this film, except possibly Manuela, the the Marwan's wife. Yeah, I think she plays a pretty big role, and like she, there's that scene towards the end where she casts the pivotal vote, right, to to let Nasser run it. We'll get there, but yeah, she she definitely has some agency. She's. Uh, it's true that the women don't have as much to do as the men, for sure, though, I, I think. And I think that's a reflection. I mean, I don't know, but just based on what I would guess uh, medieval Andalusia to be like, I'm guessing that's at least somewhat a reflection of the times and the, the culture. So th- this this neck stabbing is kind of the catalyst for the the conflict that will ensue because Averroes, you know, he's... I didn't explicitly say use this word, but I think he has a more liberal view of of Islam, the way that he kind of preaches it and the way that he counsels the caliph, more inclusive. You know, he he's chilling with the dancers and he basically spares the assailants' lives. He, he says he's the judge, so he can say what their punishment is. And he says they get to go, how long do they have to stay in prison? Is it five months or something like that? I think it was five years. Five years. And the caliph won the death penalty. Right. And so this is kind of planting the seed for conflict between Averroes and, and the caliph. And the, we're going to see the caliph, he's going to kind of become the useful idiot for the, the sect. And man, if if this if this sect was like planning this, they, they nailed it. Because it goes exactly as you would hope if you were a member of that sect trying to so discord between Averroes and and the caliph. Um, and there's one guy, this is one of the leaders, I, I think, I, I don't know which one he is, but he's got like a, what I consider like a stereotypical sinister looking facial hair thing on him, where it's kind of like straight line across the mustache area, and then he's got like a striped beard down the middle. It's kind of like not exactly a Jafar facial hair situation because there's no little curl. But definitely you see him and you're like, okay, I know that this guy is bad news. And he's kind of trying to make his claim with the caliph, like, hey, you know what? I would love to be a judge. If you ever feel like you need a new judge, let me know. I'd be a good judge. (laughs) My name is Judge. (laughs) We were talking Arrested Development today at the Beach House. but I had had trouble keeping track of this guy because I think what happens, he's... Okay, he's like the main antagonist is a guy named Sheikh Riyad. And I think later the guy that you're talking about is kind of like the uh, being the merciless look. Ooh, that's a good pull. Have you seen Flash Gordon, Dan? No. You got to watch that one. Okay. You saw the movie. It was like he's conspiring with Sheikh Riyad against Averroes. And I believe, I believe he's, his specific job is to basically coordinate with the Christians who are about to attack. I think we see him later on in a later scene uh, involving, well, it was like when Joseph tries to bring the books back to France, but I, I believe that's him talking with the, Christ, the Christian army that's there. Uh, but otherwise, I kind of lost track of him after this scene. I think that's such an interesting theme in history of collaborationism. Just the idea that you'll side with your enemies because if they take over, they're going to put you in a position of power. Because like, how long do you expect that to last? It, it just, by its very nature, seems like a tenuous thing to do. But it's happened all throughout history. Like, 
when Cortez fought the Aztecs, he had other Mesoamerican people on his side helping him because they didn't like the Aztecs either. Interesting. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Like the sect was making all these moves. It's like they always looked like they were one step ahead. I mean, maybe you're right that that would have ultimately been a bad situation for him. But meanwhile, the Caliph, I'm not sure he should be in charge. He was pretty dumb. He was changing his mind like three times throughout the movie. And he just didn't even seem to know really what was going on. He was always like, make a good sales pitch. You can change his mind about the direction of the country or something. He's very passive. He should just let Avaros run the show. (laughs) I mean, the Caliph is a, he's a fool. He's consistently portrayed as a fool. And I get the sense that, oh, it's like you, also, when you're watching a film like Agora, is that it's talking about the 12th century, but it's not really talking about the 12th century. <laughs> uh, it's it's directed. I think Shaheen is directing this movie at uh, 20th century Egypt. Yeah, and you know, by extension, 21st century Egypt, because I believe the president at this time was Mubarak, who got uh, forcibly expelled from his own country in the Arab Spring. Right. I mean, I I don't want to distract from your point because I'm sure you know a lot more about that region of the world, but I, too, thought it was very timely. I mean, it's all the way back from 1997 at this point, but, like, obviously radicalism in Islam was a big issue around that time and since, but just the idea of anybody being radicalized and how that process works is very relevant to the present, too. You just reminded me of the specific incidents that inspired him to make this movie. I don't know, are, are either of you familiar with the uh, trilogy or the Egyptian author, uh, Nagib Mahfouz, who is a famous Egyptian novelist, kind of the, he's described as like the Zola of Egypt? No. You'd have to tell me about the Zola of Zola's home. Okay, well, he wrote, he wrote an allegorical novel called The Children of Jebelawi, which was transparently about, you know, like the three, the history of the three monotheisms, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And then you have a fourth guy representing modernism, who is better than all of them. And the the novel was quite controversial. And Mahfouz was attacked. It's like a knife attack that he survived, but he was disabled for the rest of his life. And he was a good friend of uh, Yusuf Shaheen, they had collaborated together on movies before. And this this was at about the same time that um, uh, Salman Rushdie and the, the fatwa that um, uh, Supreme Leader of Iran had put against him, uh, like the late 80s. So you have these two incidents of extremism and also the poor reception of Shaheen's previous film called The Immigrant, which is the story of Joseph from the Bible, or Joseph from the book of Genesis, and also the Quran, but because there's a prohibition in Sunni Islam against portraying prophets on film, he he couldn't make the film unless, well, basically what he did is he changed everyone's names. It was the same story. He changed the names. Nobody was fooled. <laughs> and he got into a lot of trouble with that. So this was kind of his creed de coeur against this kind of rising extremism. Oh, and again, prophetic in the sense that the film seems to be directed at the government saying you can't ignore these extremists. And of course, the president of Egypt at the time was eventually overthrown and replaced by a religious extremist. So that's my bit. <laughs> wow. Cree de is a term we haven't used enough on this podcast. 
So you can make a can make a rank uh, creed a good. I don't know for. <laughs> so one thing that happens around this time is something that raises the stakes a little bit. Although I was kind of disappointed, it felt like this thread was more or less discarded. Maybe it's just kind of th- thematic background material. But Abdullah, who is in the midst of a relationship with a Romani woman who's lower class. Uh, discovers that she is pregnant with his baby. So, Gavin, you said you had some thoughts on... This is Sarah, by the way, the the woman who's pregnant. Um, What were your thoughts on on Sarah and this relationship between Abdullah and and Sarah? Well, in terms of the the Romani, uh, when I went back to write down my thoughts on this this film in preparation for this podcast, like, Averroes' followers are portrayed as being... was not just, like, lower class. It was, like, lower class, upper class from all walks of society... You have Joseph, who's a Christian, and who remains a Christian. If you, I don't know if you noticed, but you see him return to France later in the film. Well, first of all, you're listening to choral music, and he makes the sign of the cross. And I was wondering, uh, where where are the Jews in this film? Especially when you have a character named Sarah, which is not a very common Muslim name. And in the Middle Ages, it's not a very common Christian one either. Uh, and I did some research, and apparently the depiction of Romani is completely anachronistic. You don't have Romani in, in Spain until like the 15th or 16th century. And I suspect that they're supposed to be substitutes for, for Jews who could not be depicted on screen in a positive light in the Egyptian film. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. I don't know if that's completely true, but you have this person named Sarah right here. Right. But you know her pregnancy. Her pregnancy is it's a plot device because it's supposed to show that Abdallah still cares about his adopted family. That's uh, but that's what I wanted to say about Sarah. I think you might be onto something. That seems really insightful. Yeah, you're blowing my mind. I had been wondering if Gypsy was a translation to, like, make whatever they were make sense to a Western audience, and maybe the original word was something else. That's what I was wondering, but. Having them as a stand-in for for Jews is very interesting. So I ran into this when I was trying to check to see if if there were Romani who were Jews, and and there are, but not not in Spain at this time period. Was, I was kind of scratching my head: why are the Romani so important in this film? It's just uh, mm-hmm. oh, but that's that's my pet theory. I'm not even sure if it's um, or it's, you know, Shaheen's not around to tell us. And I don't think he would tell us the truth anyway. <laughs> Well, it kind of makes sense. That is really interesting. Another thing that happens around this time is Averroes starts to get suspicious. He and his crew start to wonder about the goings-on, this sect, the one that stabbed Marwan, and their rising power and rising prominence in culture in Andalusia. And they're wondering, basically, will they start... targeting Averroes directly. And Joseph, the guy who's the son of the person burned at the stake in the very first scene, he has this, I guess, flash of inspiration that he should go hide all of Averroes's writings. And he goes and hides it in the cellar just in time because literally the next scene, the house of Averroes gets burned down, uh, presumably targeting Averroes and Averroes's writing. So... Joseph, nice job. You, you saved the, the writings. They're, they're down in the cellar. Um, and this kicks off the thread of the second half of the film, which is 
Veroes and his followers determined that they need to make copies of Averroes's writings and spread them out across the world so that they will persist even after Averroes is gone. And this kind of becomes a core theme that I think there's a quote that gets repeated a couple times. It's ideas have wings. You cannot control the way they fly. I'm paraphrasing there. It's like you can't stop their flight. And and that's that becomes an important theme here. So basically, as the this extremist sect is trying to trace down Averroes' works and get them snuffed out and and get Averroes out of power. The the quote unquote good guys here are are trying to preserve them. So Gavin, one thing I was curious is like how much did this ring true to you as as something that could have hypothetically happened in the twelfth century, or was it simply a uh, a thematic piece to speak to audiences today? About about what exactly? I guess this the threat. I, I don't know. It's like in the twenty first century, the the notion like once something's written and it's on the internet, obviously it's not truly immortal, but like. It's out there, you know, the idea, the thought that like somebody could have written stuff and that just basically disappears if they're a prominent person. It's just not a realistic thing. But I guess that really would have been a threat in the time of of Papyrus. Right. Well, this I mean, this movie really drives home how precarious the transmission of knowledge is without media to disseminate it widely. As we think about like the printing press, how that revolutionized um, our ability to reproduce knowledge quickly here you needed to have you know people write stuff out by hand and have to defend it from the elements and as we see that the elements like in addition to people who destroy books on purpose you have things that can happen by accident like things falling into water i know my own personal research you know i read about the history of a manuscript that was blown up in world war ii or you know trans uh, translated to a safer place and then a water main broke or things like that, or you have very famous books for which we have one manuscript that just happened to survive. And that's, you know, that's what I think about when I watch this film. I think about how lucky we are to have books. Uh, as you think about every ancient book, like Aristotle himself, the only reason we have Aristotle is because people kept transmitting him, including, you know, people like Averroes and his Latin translators who translate Averroes into Latin. And of course, the Greeks at the same time, Greek Christians, you know, we still have Aristotle and Greek. Uh, every book we have from the ancient world still exists because some medieval person thought it was important to keep it. Well, one of my favorite podcasts is called Hardcore History. It's hosted by a guy named Dan Carlin. And something he has repeated in multiple episodes is the concept that an idea is a contagion, like a disease like all of history is the spread and containment of these ideological bacilli. And, you know, he talked about like the, the Russian revolution and how the Germans actually sent Lenin into Russia because he wanted to start a revolution. And they're like, okay, we'll give you money to accomplish that. And that knocked Russia out of the war in world war one. Uh, But, like, my favorite episode of the whole podcast is one about the Reformation. That was what Martin Luther kickstarted, right? Yes. The the schism and how the printing press played such a role in that, that now everybody could form an interpretation of religion and pass their ideas around. And that 
led to the whole house of cards starting to fall apart. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought of a specific example of you know, a transmission of knowledge. Our oldest, our oldest manuscript of the Hebrew Bible, or which I mean the, the actual, the actual, the Bible in Hebrew, the old, the Old Testament, is from the year 1008, the earliest complete copy, and we have, of course, citations and other other works of literature. And well, it's like the oldest. There was an older copy from the 10th century called the Aleppo Codex. And the reason it's no longer the oldest complete copy is because it was in Aleppo uh, in 1948, which was a bad time, a bad time for a Jewish book to be in a Muslim country. So it was partially destroyed. So that's what I mean when I talk about like the precariousness of books, especially books that, you know, before the age of print, when you could reproduce things quickly and cheaply. Right. And I mean, even in the last couple of years, like with the iconoclasts of ISIS going through Palmyra and destroying everything. It's like, I God, don't even start on that. It breaks my heart to hear that. Uh, wow. That lasted all the way up until now from like, I don't know, was that Sumeria or something? It was like the oldest possible civilization, like older than Egypt. And it's like, well, not anymore. Like even when you are actively destroying culture, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are our oldest manuscripts period of the Bible, fragmentary of course some of them have to start have started to deteriorate simply because we moved them out of their hiding place as they were in ideal conditions to be preserved for thousands of years and just uh exposure to the sun or to the elements um some of them have become unreadable unfortunately and we have to rely on photographs now i think about that with regards to the mammoths that they dig out of the ice too it's like, you know, every time that happens, they talk about how, oh, soon we'll be able to drain out the DNA and use it and have mammoths running around. It's like, well, why don't you keep them in there until we're ready then? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, what if we dig them all out before we figure that out? Jurassic Park, but mammoths, yeah. I don't know. Or like in The Thing with uh, the stuff in the ice. Yeah. We were talking about John Carpenter today, which will come up at the end of this episode here, Brian, but... Um, anyways, so yeah, so they, they're making these copies of the, of this text. And, um, as you mentioned, Gavin, uh, Joseph, so he, he was again, the guy from the beginning, he leaves with a, a copy, a set. It's like, uh, he's kind of wearing it around his shoulder. It's probably about like 20, 25 books or something. And he's going to go bring them. I guess he's trying to bring them back to France, which is where the movie started. Yes. And that's correct. So he like we see him traveling and my brother Will, especially I was watching with him. We were just kind of laughing at Joseph's attempts to get them out. It, he like he's canoeing and he like canoes over a waterfall. And then he's like, oh, oh, here's another waterfall. And he tries to hang from a tree, but he drops all the books in there. But he saves one that's apparently like the most important one. I forget which one that was like one particular text. Probably the commentary on Aristotle. Yeah, they keep placing emphasis on the Aristotle book. Right. And then he brings it all the way to France and then they open the book and he's like, "Uh-oh. Well, I guess the ink smeared. Oh, that's too bad." <laughs> and this is when I mentioned that Marwan was was the people's champion. Joseph was the inverse of that. He was the the fan non-favorite cuz he kind of bumbled through a few of those things. It was like a comedy of errors. Yeah. So when he fell into the water, I thought well, that would ruin the book, right? But I guess not, because he kept going. 
But then he gets there and it's ruined. And it's like, why didn't you just check when it happened and you would have saved yourself some of the trip? Look at the books, man. This, um, the end of this sequence has one of my favorite lines in the movie. As you see, uh, some of the books flow downstream and they reach the Christian camp. Uh, so these would be the, the Spaniards who are in the process of conspiring with uh, Sheikh Riyad's uh, patsy to overthrow the caliph. And they find these books. Some soldiers find these books in the river and they bring them. And the, uh, the Sheikh's underling, he sees them and he says, smuggling books. What decadence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt bad for Joseph the whole movie because, I mean, he does that thing in the boat, ruins the books, and then he's got to keep schlepping all around. But also before he heads out on his big quest. He doesn't get the girl. You know, he's like the big, he's the big student of Averroes. He loves Averroes. His dad translated Averroes the first time. And like, it's because that fell through is the whole reason he's got to be in Andalusia in the first place. But before he heads to France with the satchel of books, he grabs Averroes' daughter and kisses her. And she says, I only like you as a friend. <laughs> yeah, he, he shot his shot and it, it didn't go well. Maybe he just might as well not come back. It's a good point. He persisted. That, that's the only thing you can say about Joseph. Even if he doesn't have game, either on the, the boat rowing front or the, the lady front, he, he persisted. You realize that he has the same name as the director? Interesting. I didn't think about that. It's like, uh, you know, a James Cameron, John Connor type of thing, except, you know, less flattering. <laughs> <laughs> um, so right around this time, uh, Abdullah, uh, he's the prince. He's getting spied on by Marwan. And, and I guess the whole team, Averroes' team, and they see that he's like being indoctrinated into the sect. And when Marwan sees this, remember he's the people's champion, he's gonna have none of it. He, he flies in there with his horse, right after making love to his wife, I'll add. Yes. Flies in there with his horse. I really like that they're spying on the like Taliban camp, whatever you wanna call this group. This Al-Qaeda insurgent guys in the green, the Green Rangers. Tommy. Uh, Marwan and the girl are spying on them using this telescope that Averroes made. And I like this kooky gadget thing. It looks like something from Gilligan's Island. Yeah. Or it kind of looks like a bong. <laughs> it's made out of like a bamboo pipe and this big fishbowl full of water. Well, one funny thing is I watched this with my brother and before... Like literally an hour before we watched it, we had a Bugs Life on for my daughters. And in that, there's a similar thing where Flick, the, the ant, he has a gadget where he has a leaf and he puts a bead of water in it so that he can use it as a telescope. We're like, it's it's the Bugs Life invention, but now it's in medieval Andalusia instead of in a tiny little island in a Bugs Life. Wow. So we thought that was funny. I like that, though. Yeah. I want to draw some other parallels between Bugs Life and this, but maybe that's something for another time. I, I don't know. I feel like the idea of somebody striking out on a journey, I mean, maybe that's just the nature of narrative itself, but I've had Bugs Life on the mind recently. Oh, yeah. So And so Marwan, he, he drives in, and this is the second abduction of Abdullah. Um, I guess the first one wasn't really an abduction. They just kind of approached him, but they grab Abdullah like mid-indoctrination and... He has a knife. I forget who he's threatening to kill, but he's doing the thing where, like, come any closer and I'll kill him. And then he runs off with Abdullah. And they bring him to, 
I guess it's Marwan's place. I don't, I don't know. It's like but wherever Averroes's followers are and tie him up and like try to talk sense into him. And this is right around the time that, that Nasser, so he's the older brother of Abdullah. He's kind of a minor figure in the first half of the film, but he becomes more important here in the second half of the film. And he and Abdullah have an argument over the way that their kind of philosophies are diverging. Because remember, Abdullah had been kind of along the more liberal side at the beginning, but he's definitely gone down the, the path of the, the, the green shirts, the green rangers, as, as Brian called them. And so we get the second song and dance number here, uh, which I know Gavin was excited about because he wanted this to be a full-on musical, where we see that the song and dance going on, and then we cut to Abdullah, and he's like losing his mind. I love this shot of him standing up with the chair kind of still tied to him and trying to break out. And I think it was on purpose. I'm actually not sure whether or not this was on purpose, but it was not clear to me whether like the song and dance had brought him back to the the good side. Like, oh yeah, I actually love song and dance. Or if he's just getting more and more angry about it and he like rips off. Right. Well, that's definitely what they're trying to make you think because even the dancers are like, it's working. We're winning him over. But yeah, he, he like rips off the cables and he's like you all are going to hell for your dancing or some some variation on that so i thought that was a fun scene i really like the actor for abdullah actually i thought he brought good ambiguity and good energy he's just i was always fascinated what he was going to do next good old ambiguous abdullah yeah so now after all this because part of uh marwan grabbing abdullah is to uh he had to confront the sect again. And so, you know, they're already anti-Marwan, but they're especially anti-Marwan now. And they, they approach him once more in the streets and it's another assassination attempt. And this time the sect finishes the job courtesy of that one guy who's kind of the face, the, the guy who I kept calling as we were watching the Snoop Dogg lookalike. And he, he throws a spear, man. He gets like a, I was thinking of a space jam when um, Michael Jordan stretches his arm and like is able to dunk it from across half court. But here it's like a spear beer being thrown from all the way down the road. Uh, no stretchy arm in sight, but it was it was a, a good shot. And it it gets Marwan. And this time Marwan's down for the count. And my brother Will was going, no, Marwan. So I was trying to think, what are the deaths in this movie? I think this other than the the burning at the stake at the beginning, this death of Marwan is the, is the only major death of the film. Um. No, there's Marwan's assailants, uh, the ones that are condemned to five years in prison, they later find that they've been... Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. It's been, it's, it looks like a suicide, but they've been silenced. They've been murdered to prevent them from talking. I'm glad you brought that up. I'd forgotten to bring that in here. That's a That was a turning point for me on the sect because it's clear at that point that they're doing it for political reasons. And that that is kind of fleshed out. Is It's not just that they have this they're doing it because of philosophical reasons, but they're doing it for their own personal empowerment as well. And so, yeah, it's kind of a, a gruesome hanging that's staged as a suicide. It's their Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> here in prison. And so as, as this uh, sect is kind of gaining power here in Andalusia, Averroes is facing a crisis of confidence and purpose and like what why am i even bothering writing if lunkheads like these are are out in the streets stabbing people and and <laughs> wooing the 
the son of the caliph and all that. Like, what's the purpose of, of everything that I do? And he he eventually decides to resign from the caliph's court, although it takes him a couple scenes to finally pull the trigger on that. Also, meanwhile, um, Nasser gets in the political game. So he gets courted by the sect, but also by the Spanish Christians, basically doing what Brian was talking about. Like, hey, you know, we'll help you get in power if you help us out from from getting it from different sides here. But he ultimately he's kind of heroic here. He, he stays strong. He sides with Averroes and he does get engaged to Averroes's daughter and basically decides that he's going to like be the hero who after Joseph bungled his way to France and <laughs> dropped all the books in the river and, and got the ink all splotched, he's going to go to Egypt instead and he's going to bring a copy of Averroes's texts to be preserved down to Egypt. And so we get this segment where Nasser, the older son of the caliph, goes to Egypt after, as you mentioned, Brian, after he gets the heart of the of Averroes's daughter. But at first, Averroes is like, no, he's the stereotypical dad in a like, I'm not going to let my daughter marry him. But um, the, the mom talks him into it. And so he gets engaged and he goes to Egypt and I suspect this director, uh, Yusuf Shaheen, was really digging shooting in uh, Egypt because we get like six beautiful shots of Egypt during this this uh, montage of travel there. Right. It made sense when I read that this was a French Egyptian film because prominent representation of both France and Egypt when you might not necessarily otherwise have those. Right. And as the, st- the story would dictate. So, yeah, it felt very self-congratulatory for me. Uh, it said that this, you know, poor Joseph couldn't get the books to France and we don't actually see him succeed, even though historically I can say that Christians, Christians in Europe did read a various in Latin, including uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, one of the major uh, Christian philosophers. So then you have his books transported to, to Egypt and to a philosopher named Al-Razi, who makes some offhand remark about, well, I don't agree with Averroes about everything, but it's nice to have copies for our library. Uh, and they're very, you know, very prominently displayed, all the books. It's the irony is that I think Averroes is actually more influential among, among Christians in Europe than he, was, than he was in the Islamic world. Oh, that's interesting. It's funny you mentioned Thomas Aquinas. I, my mom watched the movie for maybe five minutes and she made the footloose comment and she also said, oh, Averroes, that's the guy that Thomas Aquinas referred to multiple times because my mom just got her master's in theology. She's Catholic as well. It's funny that you brought that up as well. Yeah. So there, there you go. Aquinas did not read Averroes in, in Arabic. I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, how, that's how heretical he is. He was read by Aquinas, uh, the premier Catholic theologian in the Middle Ages, at least. Uh, the caliph at this point, the useful idiot to the sect, he's not been navi- not been uh, leading well, and he's kind of in a spiral, and he finally feels his power slipping as things are encroaching from all sides. So he, he finally decides, oh, because Averroes also just resigned, and he's like, oh, God damn it. Well, I guess I'm just going to be a radicalist too now. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with the populist appeal of, of the radical sect and... Basically, he's like, all right, 
Averroes is out. Book burning is in. So let's all burn Averroes's work and I guess probably other liberal thinkers of the time and era. Yeah, he gets a fatwa issued against him. Okay. Yeah, they use the word. Which is a big deal. He's persona non grata. He's he's out. I mean, that's what you said, but it's official. And I think this this book burning, it uh, it also... So this is going to end up being like the last scene of the movie. And it definitely... It's a pretty potent ending, I would say. It mirrors the, the beginning. There's a scene before that that I would like to discuss because it kind of confuses me. Sure, let's go for it. There's a scene where the caliph, you know, is really put out. He's like, Averroes has just quit. I think actually in real life, I think he was banished. Um, but he's walking past a guy that's sitting there and he's reading what looks like a modern newspaper and they have it out. The Caliph has it out with this guy. And I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's like another minister. And he says, why did you, um, he's the first person who says uh, ideas have wings. Mm. So like the phrase appears twice in the film, once in the lips of this guy. And for all I know, I don't know, I don't know who plays it because I don't know the character's name. But for all I know, it could be Yusuf Shaheen himself. As then it reappears at the end, not in Averroes' lips, but it's kind of like this epigram. I, I wrote down, you know, one of the lines where he talks, he's basically castigating the caliph for being, you know, so attentive to these obsequious people who just want his power. He says, people bow when you fart. <laughs> and that, that line stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny. It was translated literally as the word fart. And that felt, we were, we, that popped up. We actually laughed because like, I mean, there is an Arabic word for fart. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, that's what you would say. It's a rich language. To say, yeah, that, that scene with the guy reading the newspaper, I, it occurred to me as I was watching, and I think this is probably true, that like this is something that was thrown in there strictly for thematic and like modern political reasons. It's like, hey, audience who's watching this, you can't do what the caliph is doing and try to squelch out ideas and because there will be people like this newspaper reader who will pass it along. But it did seem kind of weird. It was like the stereotypical dad sipping his coffee with a newspaper held up over his nose. Well, there's a, there's a couple times we see in this movie the booksellers of different kinds and librarians and things as almost like verging on a secret society. They're the ones preserving the knowledge and they all like look knowingly at each other. And just that the, the literate population is the ones who possess a kind of power over and above the secular leaders because the knowledge is going to endure because it's it's passed from hand to hand and even though any one king or caliph is in power in a moment and can snuff out an individual person the ideas are going to persevere so yeah in this last scene they're burning the books of Averroes and a bunch of things happen. So one is Nasser returns from Egypt, where he reveals that he successfully saved a copy of Averroes' writings and, and brought them to Egypt. And also he basically shares with his dad, hey, everybody's working behind your back, basically, including the sect, <laughs> and probably should not side with them because they're, they're conspiring against you. They're also working with the Christian Spaniards to try and get power. And... Similarly, Abdullah, I forget exactly what the spark is, but we see him have his awakening here around this scene. Well, I thought his awakening is when he reconciles with his brother after the death of Marwan. 
Okay, so is it so is that before this then? It looks like it's it's actually it's filmed like Lovers Reuniting. Interesting, yeah. When it's done, it's really uh it's one of those it's one of those moments where you kind of like raise your raise your eyebrow a little bit. Yeah. Especially because they're brothers. Yeah. But that's that's definitely in there. Or they do they do make one last uh pass. Oh, in fact, what, what happens, I think what happens is that Abdullah grabs his father and says, you know, like he's going to kill him. And he says, they tried to, they wanted me to do this to you. They wanted me to kill you. Right. Yeah. He's like, I could have killed you here. That's what they wanted me to do. I remember that scene. Yeah. So something that's kind of interesting, and I, I will just kind of insert it here, is I remember that I've heard of multiple people named some variation of Abdul Nasser. And so I was looking up, what does Abdul Nasser mean? Because you got one son named Abdullah and one son named Nasser. And apparently Abdul Nasser means helper of the servant. So it's like servant of the servant. So both both Abdullah and Nasser sound like variations on servant, which, I don't know, interesting things to name your kids. Abdullah, well, Abdullah means servant of Allah, and it was the name of Muhammad's father. Nasser, I'd have to look at some... I'd have to look at the Arabic spelling of it. Could mean helper. That's interesting. And if there is some mirroring of the meaning of the names, as Brian is saying, it's kind of like showing a theme or spotlighting a theme, which is that you have these two sons kind of go down different paths, despite having very similar, I mean, they're brothers, the same background, you know? So, so at last the Caliph, when he sees each of his sons making this claim, about what the sect is up to um, has his awakening that he's been the dingus all along and he comes up with his own little plan to counter the sect which is he's going to he says hey you know what I think you're right you should have a little bit more to do you and your people and the thing that you should have more of to do is to go fight the Christians (laughs) and in fact you the sheik you can be out there on the front line reading your religious poetry to inspire them or something along those lines, reading your, your, uh, sermons. Yeah, exactly. To inspire people. So we get a a kind of over the top performance by the Sheik who's like kind of twitchy and like realize that he's, he's been got there at the end. It's like, you know, the story of uh, David and Bathsheba Mm -hmm. in the Bible where he gets, um, the, David is in love with Bathsheba, but she's inconveniently married. But her husband is in his army, and so he puts him on the front line. Right. Knowing full well that he'll get killed. So that's what's happening here. It's kind of um, basically condemning him to death. He goes on the front line. He's probably not going to come back home. Famously adapted by VeggieTales as King George and the Ducky. (laughs) (laughs) My personal favorite episode. Gavin, I was surprised... I was surprised when this came up on AE recently that you did not have familiarity with VeggieTales. I have no experience with VeggieTales. I don't know anything about it. Well, next time you come on the show, we'll we'll queue up some VeggieTales. <laughs> we'll bring you back for the VeggieTales app. For the for the movies, so there's one about Jonah, remember? Right. Yeah. That came out when I was high in high school. I think I was a bit too old for that. Although I did see the preview right before Spirit. So Spirit wasn't too juvenile for me in high school. Oh man, Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron? Exactly. I saw it with a good friend and a girl that I was crushing on. We were supposed to see the Born Identity. Yeah, I was going to say, did you see it with a girl? 
Yeah. <laughs> We're supposed to see the born identity, and this was a backup plan of my suggestion. It was like one of the one of the worst moments of my life. And afterwards, my friend and this girl started dating. Oh, no, the worst. And I was just, you know, I lost on all counts there. Uh, Joseph moment. Exactly. Yeah, I felt very much like like Joseph in this film. In a moment of things coming full circle, the movie Spirit, the trailer, uses the music from Rudy in the trailer. So. <laughs> okay. It's good. I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the trailer multiple times. And well, the movie sucked. <laughs> oh, man. You know what? I was at King's Dominion once, and it was like they were doing this light, like festival of lights, but it was during the summer, and like they had lights strung all around flashing to music, and they played that music, and I thought, oh, this is the spirit stallion of the Cimarron song. But uh, no, I think you are correct that it's the theme from Rudy, which has been used in so many trailers. I know. It's inspirational tune to, like that you could use anywhere. But let's bring this thing home. Yeah. So the movie ends with Averroes also having, uh, also finding some renewed purpose, some some new inspiration and clarity. Now that he sees that his words have indeed been spread, he does have a, a purpose for all the writing and thinking that he does. And the the last shot of the movie is we kind of see the the huge bonfire in the background and we see again that that epigram ideas have wings no one can stop their flight and Averroes tosses one of his books over his shoulders into the book burning fire because it doesn't matter if the book burns his ideas have already spread so i was wondering what you guys thought of this ending it always struck me as a little flip yeah it seems like uh, it's a comic ending for like a very serious serious situation but how else are you going to put a happy ending on this to me it was like well you don't want me here well screw you because i'm big in france like jerry lewis <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's how destiny from 1997 ends we did it we we got through destiny not that that was necessarily taxing to get through Destiny, but no. So let's talk some things we liked, some things we didn't like, maybe some of our reactions or, or thoughts that, that might not have made it in here. So I, I'll share one thought, which is that I thought there was a lot of this movie that was just like not visually very interesting. It was just like medium shots of people talking. But there are some pretty cool interior shots that have like interesting compositions that like bring out the unique architecture. And... Um, I always liked it when this mo when they were talking inside, particularly these quarters where the caliph talks with uh, Averroes is like a really interesting room with a chessboard. And so um, there there's some pretty interesting architecture details going on in this film that I enjoyed. Yeah, there's this scene at nighttime when it was almost dreamlike. There's like this chanting happening. And there's this long take of a handheld camera going through the halls of a castle. And it goes on for like a solid minute. And I, I just really liked that shot. It came, I don't know, like 45 minutes in. And early in the movie, I was feeling like bored and confused a lot of the time. There's a lot of people to keep track of. But as it went along, it won me over. Right. I noticed that that was a really unusual shot too because we did we had almost no handheld prior to that and it was it was just kind of striking definitely uh the director you know 
adding just a little bit of like spice and experimentation into to what he was doing there. Gavin, what are some things, some reactions? You said you had some notes. What are some things you want to share or reactions you had to this film? I was thinking about why I like it. I'm sorry, I had some thoughts. I had some more thoughts about the ending. If I could share those right away. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sure. I guess what's beyond the ending is when you actually look at the lives of the people after this film ends. The film takes place in the year 1195. And you know that because the Caliph Al-Mansur is returning from the Battle of Alarcos, which took place in that year. So, like, he dies in 1198, the Caliph. Averroes dies in 1199, I believe. So they're about to die. Nasir takes the throne, and he loses a major battle against the Christians about a decade after this film ends, and that's like the turning point in the reconquest of Spain. That was like uh, the beginning of the end of Muslim rule over Spain. So it's like everything's about to get worse for everyone in this film, and that's kind of a bummer. Interesting. Yeah. So It's like uh, the end of American Graffiti, Brian, where they kind of have this sort of happy ending, and then it ends with a text that like two of the characters would die over the next year. It's like things would not get better for this, despite the ostensible happy ending here. Oh, man. Randomly, I want to give a shout out to the new documentary on Disney Plus about George Lucas. It's called Light and Magic, about the creation of Industrial Light and Magic and all the special effects projects they've done over the decades. And it's great. But there's some discussion in the first episode of American Graffiti, because basically that's how he got his money to make ILM and make Star Wars. So, so I guess to stay on topic, you know, the things I like about this film, I, the first thing that sticks out is the, the music, honestly. I do like the musical numbers. I wish there were more of them. There are several images that stick out for me, and all of them, I think, involve fire. So the, the beginning, uh, despite the dubious historical accuracy, I think it's a very effective opening. Uh, see the guy burn at the stake, and you have you know, the, the statues in the church kind of staring down in judgment at this heretic, and you see the bishop slowly getting dressed and then giving his blessing. Uh, you mentioned the shot, the handheld shot in the castle. I, the thing that I that sticks out most for me is um, right after that, when you see them dancing, and especially when you see the emir um, standing with his hands outstretched over the fire. I think that's my favorite shot in the whole film. Oh, interesting. Because of how unnerving it is. It's something that stuck with me you know, all these years. It's the one thing I remember about it, like the one image that, that I remembered from it. And then, of course, you have the, the, the fire that burns down a various house and and the fire at the end. My memory of this film, as you talked about, you know, there are lots of medium shots for, for a film that's allegedly an epic film that is kind of disappointing, but I, I did think it was you know, very colorful. I like the costumes. And I like that it's a film of ideas. You, know, you don't have a lot of films that have a philosopher as, a, as the main character. And I compared it to Agora in that sense, which is also kind of a swords and sandals. I mean, it looks like a swords and sandals film, but it's not. It's a film of ideas. But at least Agora had like a big action set piece in the middle. I don't maybe have have either of you seen that film? No, no, haven't seen that one. Well, I probably shouldn't. I probably shouldn't spoil it. Yeah, there's there's a scene in the middle where things are getting you know, people are tearing shit up. Uh, you don't really get that here. That's the one thing I really kind of dislike. I, I I remember the first time I saw it, I was very upset there wasn't a battle scene between the Christians and the Muslims. But also, there's no there's no thematic reason to have it. 
Right. The other movie I was thinking about was El Cid, which is I actually haven't seen it, <laughs> but it's about battles that he was having in Andalusia. Right. So that would be the other side from the other perspective. Yeah. The Christian perspective. You get medieval battles in that one, though. Right. Of course, I like the fact that it takes place in the 12th century. How many movies take place in the 12th century? I don't know if El Cid, uh, I don't know when he lived. It must have been about the same time. Yeah, pretty close. We have the Third Crusade going on at this time. They actually refer to it in dialogue at one point. So you have Kingdom of Heaven. It's happening in some other part of the world. Uh, and, you know, you just, you just, people avoid films about like period that I would call late antiquity. That's like 250 to 750. And you see films about the Middle Ages, but it's like the Western European Middle Ages, uh, not about the Islamic Middle Ages. And it's just uh, that in itself that earns a lot of points for me. That that's that's why that's why this film in particular and Agora stick out in my memory is that just the subject matter was an uh, unusual choice. That's a definite good thing for me too. Is I've just never immersed myself in this setting, this culture at all. I didn't know anything about this, and I really did feel like I gradually was brought into this world that just had its a, a different rhythm to it and just a lot of uh, production details that made you feel like you were there. And it's kind of cool to, to go somewhere that you don't often get to go. And it, it you're right, it makes you think about how there's you could probably group like 85% of movies into like six or seven different settings. So it's kind of nice when you get something that is not one of those settings, you know? And I mean, that in itself is testament to how ideas can travel through media, right? It's like this story from the Middle Ages, from the Middle East, has made its way to us. Well, I like what you said about it's a movie about ideas, because I think that has two layers to it. One is that it literally has a lot of ideas in it about like the way that within religion you can have different levels of extremism and how that really relates to political philosophies and how those different things are interrelated. But it also is quite literally a movie about ideas and how those get passed and how, you know, people react to hearing those ideas and get to use Brian's uh, metaphor from hardcore history, get infected with those ideas and how different people react to that. So um, I think that's a pretty astute comment. Um, And it's it is interesting to see all the different threads where like ideas pass and people react to it in different ways um, throughout the film, like whether it's the books being preserved, the books being the physical encapsulation of the ideas or Averroes' ideas kind of building a community of people who support each other and how the ideas that he preaches being kind of the core of that. But then also, of course, we see in Abdullah all sorts of different ideas being absorbed by him in different ways and ultimately like the the sect seducing him there and then the way that he gets back to his original ideas on that it's just pretty interesting all these threads kind of going on and interacting in different ways yeah i i mentioned it kind of already but i like how it uses radicalization as a theme and how you know that wasn't just timely in the time period it's set it was it was also timely in the period when the film was made. And I feel like it's timely also today. It's like, what is 
a powerful moving force in history. It's when you can get a bunch of young men together and get them angry about something. I think there's a point in the film where they're discussing Sheikh Riyadh's motives. They say someone tells the Verwees, you know, why would he want, uh, he's already the richest man in the land. What more could he want? And he says power. I feel like we live in I mean, an age where rich assholes just want more power. <laughs> For sure, yeah. The first person who comes to mind is Elon Musk, but you know, other, other people, other people as well. Well, I mean, obviously in America, that's a major theme right now is the, the billionaires wielding more and more political influence. And yeah, it's a movie that I think will probably always be at least somewhat timely, so long as there are always people who want power, which is to say it will always be a timely movie. But I definitely saw some connective threads there, too, to like the current landscape of what you see in America. I was also struck by the impressive visuals, not so much at the start of the film, but as it went along, there were several times when like some big visual would hit me. So you mentioned all the things that break out into flames, which seem pretty dangerous. I mean, there's a guy who, like, his pants catch fire and he's running around. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Um, but also, like, when Joseph's doing the whitewater rafting in the canoe, that was pretty impressive. Like, <laughs> he goes over some pretty big waterfalls. And then when the dancers would bust out into the streets, and really, we get some cast of thousands moments. Right. That's another thing at the end that really struck me is there's a couple of shots where it is like a massive cast that they have of, of extras brought in here. And you really feel like it's the whole town at the town square watching the book burning. Some of those are like the most ineffective guards I've ever seen where they, they just kind of let them walk through. <laughs> They're trying to meet up with the Varroes. <laughs> and the last thing I want to praise is I really like the character of a Varroes. I know it's it's kind of a sort of Harry Potter, for the love of God, read another book type thing, but he reminded me of Uncle Iroh in Avatar The Last Airbender. The idea that there's kind of this international cabal of scholars that supersedes any one nation's tyrant. Oh, that's a good connection, yeah. It's like there's there's wise people in Andalusia talking to wise people in France, talking to wise people in Egypt, and no uppity sheik is going to mess with that. They're still going to have that free trade of ideas. And even if one of them gets taken down, that's not going to be the end of spreading ideas, basically. Right. So what are some not-so-good things about Destiny 1997? Brian, what's something about this that you did not like? It's kind of long. It's two hours and 15 minutes. I don't know if it needed quite that running time. What's, what are your thoughts? I, I, have the, I feel the same as you. I feel like it could have lost 15 minutes. Yeah. It's not overly taxing, but it feels its length. The 130s is like the death zone, you know, for films. Right. I was like, for epic movies especially. Like, for epic movies... You either do it was, I mean, I don't think if, if it's two hours, it's not epic for me. So they should have gone like the full three hours or they should have you know, done something more intimate too. <laughs> yeah. Had a battle in there or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I agree, Brian. When I was making my notes, I was scrubbing through the, the film on Netflix and it occurred to me that the majority of what I thought of as the plot, basically up to when they start making copies of Averroes' texts, 
that felt like a whole lot of stuff and the majority of the stuff. And that's all in the first half. And I think the second half of the movie leading up to that last scene drags a little bit. That's the part where it feels particularly long, at least to me. But I had a little bit of that, too. I ended up watching it in two sittings. I mean, that's the nature of shared TV at a beach house when everybody's getting dinner together and stuff. But yeah. But hey, for what it's worth, it is on Netflix. And what was the last film we covered that that was true of? It's been a while. I don't even know. Yeah. I also think the movie didn't do the best job of helping us keep track of the characters and and what their motivations and incentives were, which is not necessarily strictly a negative thing. Like there's something to be said for a movie that just plunges you right in and does its own thing. But I was glad that I had at least my brother and sometimes other people sitting with me and we could like talk through what was happening so that I remained on the movie's page. I had some trouble keeping track of characters as well. Part of that is um, a difficulty with face recognition. So I I had, I think I conflated Sarah, the the daughter, the Romani daughter with Averroes' own daughter, sometimes we're seen sitting together. Right. So when Joseph, you know, kisses her, I was shocked. <laughs> yeah. So I thought he was making a move on Marwan's, you know, very pregnant girlfriend. And then I was confused about that for a while. It's quite possible I may have I think Zainab is the name of Averroes's wife it is it's not uh it's not so clearly established she's a very minor character and I still don't know who this newspaper guy is or if we saw him before yeah if, if I were script doctoring this I would have streamlined the characters a little bit it's it's a busier cast than it needs to be I really felt that with the sect it's like I mean, you want it to feel like a big movement, but there's like five characters of note who have overlapping purposes. I know there's one named character named Borhan, and he's he's the guy who always keeps messing up. And I know that from the dialogue. Say, so Borhan asks a stupid question, <laughs> you know, in in the classroom to try and trip up a Veroese. and apparently he's also there during the dance sequence. I don't know what the guy looks like. I just know there's a character named Borhan. <laughs> oh man, but, you know, some of that's some of that's probably on me. Well, you've seen it two times and it was formative on you. So if you are having trouble keeping track of the characters, then I think that's a testament to the film. Any other not so good things that anybody wants to shout out here? No, I'm getting close to the point where I'm ready to rate. What about you, Gavin? It's a scene where uh, Averroes is, they're leaving town and he's moving the couch with his wife. And he's like, hey, do you remember this couch? This is a couch that we first had sex on. Oh, yeah. And I just, I mean, a lot, part of this film, you know, a film that celebrates philosophy, but also celebrates, you know, simpler pleasures in life. I don't know if I needed to know that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Also, when Marwan, when Marwan decides when they're scouting out Abdullah and they decide to have a quickie, I thought for a second that's going to be consequential and that Marwan would get away. And he doesn't. It's just there. <laughs> yeah. I thought that too for a second because it, it does. He's like, hey, do you want to go canoodle over here? <laughs> and then it like does a dramatic pan to the telescope. And I was like, oh, he's going to miss it. He's going to miss it. But no. Oh, right, right. No, yeah. It goes back to the telescope. And nope, nope. They get it done in time and he's still there uh, for the, uh, the Emir's uh, reveals face day. And of course, it's just some dude that we've never seen before. It's supposed to be dramatic. I don't know. Yeah. There were some weird things like that where. I wouldn't say it was like materially detrimental to the film, but like, no, it definitely has charm. It's memorable. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I was thinking more of like the way that it kind of cuts to the telescope and makes you think one thing that ends up not being true and just some weird, weird pacing hiccups or like something about the the visual cues or the, the, the timing or something threw me off just every now and then. The first one that really distracted me was like you have the the dad die in the opening scene and then the mom dies a minute later. And it's like it was just a weird cadence of things to happen there at the beginning. I don't know. Just felt kind of odd, but anyways, I think I think we're ready to rate. So we're gonna get to our signature "Is it good?" section, which Gavin, as a past listener, you should be familiar with. So the "Is it good?" is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, an eight out of eight. So I think what we usually do is we will have. Brian rate first because he is the the regular who is not the host. So we'll have Brian rate, then Gavin, and then me. And in our eight-point scale, I'll just read it out loud here for Gavin's benefit and the listener's benefit. A one out of eight is a very not good, followed by a not good, followed by a not not good, followed by a good-ish. So that's one through four. And then at five, we have good, then very good, then exceptionally good, then up at the top of eight out of eight is toward the good, toward the good. So, Brian, is Destiny from 1997 good? All right. So this is one that rose in my estimation as it went along. For a while, I was thinking it was going to fit comfortably at five out of eight, which is kind of the default rating I give to foreign films I find artfully made yet inaccessible. Like, I feel for one reason or another, I don't really understand it. I, I'm distanced from it. Uh, but I am going to give this one a 6 out of 8. A very good. Because as it unfolded, I was won over by the grandeur of some of the visuals. And I really did like Averroes' character. Just the wise advisor. I want to know more about this guy. This was... Uh, historical personage who was new to me but he seems pretty cool where are you at gavin as someone who's seen the film before right so um first i have to adapt to your strange eight-point scale and the only way i can do that is by thinking in terms of roger ebert's you know four stars which is actually eight points just you know with a half star system right that's helpful think of it so part of it is that this is a film that's sentimental you know i saw it during a formative period in my life and I feel like re- realistically, it should be around the same, around six, but I have to give it a seven. This is um, this is a film that's very important to me. I, I like to spread the gospel of this film. I like to introduce new people to this film, uh, and I've seen it, you know, two two and a half times, three times. Uh, so I I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> a lot of it, a lot of it is uh, kind of a novelty factor. Maybe if I had seen forty Egyptian films before this, maybe if I had seen Shaheen's other films it would have made less of an impression on me, but that wasn't the case. <laughs> That's a, an exceptionally good, a seven out of eight. Exceptionally good, yes. So I am going to come in at a good, a five out of eight. Not much to say differently from from what either of you had to say. You know, I think I think it is an interesting story, and it it, it also did grow on me a little bit as it went. It did drag quite a bit in the middle for me, and just in moments, it felt like 
it wasn't quite clicking for me. Like something about the way it was made was just a little off. But overall, it works. And uh, I did have trouble keeping track of the characters, but I in, I ultimately enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. And I'm in the realm of a high good. So not quite a very good, but almost there. And I think if I watched it again, maybe I'd be at a very good. Who knows? But I, I also did enjoy this one. That's what I have here on Is It Good? So we had a very good, an exceptionally good, and a good from the three of us. So yeah, uh, one that we liked. And Gavin, thank you very much for for joining us, for bringing something really different for us. I like it when we uh, go out of our comfort zone a little bit, try new things, uh, get fresh voices here on the podcast. And I think it was also nice that we had a, a movie that was a little bit more challenging and a little bit more intellectually curious than some of the other films that we've watched. Our, our past few episodes were the bedazzled Brendan Fraser movie, the George of the Jungle movie. We've had a couple others that were a little bit less challenging than this one and challenging in a positive way. A movie about ideas, as you said, Gavin. Right. We were glad to have you aboard. It's happy to be here. Hope you had a good experience. Hope you tell your friends and your extended network and you spread the word. You copy down our ideas and pass them around. Let the ideas spread their wings. Yeah, that, that we discussed tonight. And maybe maybe we can have you back sometime and you can you can bring something else for us because we appreciate your unique expertise bringing it here. So uh, I'd be happy to to uh, join you guys again. And maybe we, we can find a way so you don't have to do it at 2 a.m. <laughs> well, it's unique circumstances. The wife and child aren't here. And what is it now? 430? It is now 430. Yeah, I think I, I should go to Jeez. bed. We should let you get some sleep. Yeah. Quite alert, though. Very stimulating discussion, though. Good, good. But Dan, what is next for the goods? So next week, we're going to have another guest on, and this will be a returning guest, and that is my brother, Will. I think I mentioned that he is in town, and I'm at a beach house with him right now, although we're going to wait till we get back from the beach house back to our uh, northern Virginia. And uh, Brian, we're going to be watching They Live, which is a John Carpenter film. And in addition to that, we are going to be counting down our favorite fight scenes. So the 1988 science fiction film, They Live, and talking about our favorite fight scenes. This is exciting. This is not one I've seen yet, though I've been pointed towards it many times. So I'm glad to finally get a chance to check it off the list. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Brian, as always, thank you. Gavin, thank you very much. And... We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye, guys.